This week on the Backtable Podcast. We weren't like drinking buddies who sat around saying, hey, let's start a company together. You know, there was a real genesis and, and impetus to doing this that drove it forward. And the downside, I think, of knowing somebody socially Beforehand. before getting them involved in something that is so, uh, you know, important and, and involves so much sacrifice is that you don't necessarily uh, know whether you can criticize them <laughs> and yeah. still be able to have dinner and drink with them later on, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. You know, so I would say that that's also something to consider that, uh, you know, there's just the character of the individuals involved is, is a key aspect of success. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Innovation Podcast. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and of course on Backtable.com. This is our next installment in the Backtable Innovation Show, where you're going to hear stories from physician entrepreneurs who are helping to drive healthcare forward through medtech innovation. This is Brian Hartley as your host this week. I'm a radiologist living in Nashville and co-founder of an early stage imaging company in the pulmonary space. I'm very excited to introduce our special guests this week, Dr. Vander, Dan Vanderweide and Dr. Fred Lee. Dr. Vanderweide is a professor of electrical and computer engineering at the University of Wisconsin. He's an inventor as well as a serial entrepreneur. His research focuses on microwave energy and applications, which led him to co-found New Wave Medical along with Dr. Fred Lee, which was acquired by J&J &J in around 2016. He's also the founder of several other companies, including Optimetra, acquired by Tektronics in 2010. Dr. Fred Lee is an interventional radiologist uh, at the University of Wisconsin. We had him on recently. He's a world-renowned researcher, innovator, and successful entrepreneur as well. He's the founder of three venture-backed startup companies with a successful exit of New Wave to J&J. Uh, both Fred and Dan are now co-founders of Elucent Medical with the Invisio navigation system with SmartClip for accurate tumor localization during cancer surgery. With that, uh, Dan, welcome to the show, and, and Fred, welcome back. Thanks, Brian. Thank you for having us, Brian. Yeah, it's great to have you guys uh, on together. This is the first time we're kind of doing uh, both of uh, two guests on at the same time, so we'll see how it works. Uh, be patient. Um, but I'm going to just tell a little bit where we ended, uh, Fred. So we're in the story, the genesis of New Wave. And we heard a little bit about you, Fred, at the beginning, your history, how it led you to ablation, and then how you got to Dan and, and uh, started New Wave. We're dividing that up into a three-part story, and this is part two. Uh, so at the end of last show, we had Fred on telling us uh, his path to ablation. We ended when you met Dan and you guys had rapid prototyped a microwave antenna using uh, waveguides and, and apparently a microwave on popcorn setting and tested it on pig livers and, and it worked. You said it was the best ablation zone you'd seen yet. Uh, then then uh, you guys decided to make a company, especially after an attorney from a strategic told you that, and I quote or paraphrase, he would roll over in his grave if you were ever able to do anything commercial with this. And you took that to heart. And I want to know what happened next, guys. So please uh, take the floor and, and, and let's get rolling. Well, Dan, I think, I think you better start. Well, uh, you know, I think what you, what you want for innovation in part is not to be contaminated with the way it's always been done. That can um, really narrow your focus and, uh, you know, f prevent you from seeing 
the picture from a fundamental perspective. And, you know, as academics, I think one of the things that we constantly try to cultivate uh, in our research as well as in our teaching is a firm grasp of the fundamentals. Uh, and I think that that uh, kind of thinking and that practice uh, also extends beyond, you know, the science and the engineering and extends into uh, how to approach life in a startup to be thinking about the fundamentals, not getting overly caught up in the trappings, whether current or expected, <laughs> of success. Uh, I think one of the one of the hallmarks of many successful and serial entrepreneurs is a focus on making sure that the investors and the the stakeholders, whoever they are, are getting their their due. And not that I get to drive a Ferrari. I think that of too much focus on the appearance of success can undermine uh, your success in real terms, in part because you may end up making decisions based, at least in part, on how is this going to look to the outside world? And are people going to talk if I sell my house in a nice neighborhood and move to a much more humble <laughs> structure in order to make this go? I I have never really been that concerned, as Fred will <laughs> testify. I haven't been super concerned with, um, you know, whether I'm wearing matching clothes or my hair is uh, perfectly combed. I'm getting better. You've got the mad scientist look? I don't know. We talked about Doc Brown before from Back to the Future, yeah. so... Um, that was the, that I've, was the I've been known to show up uh, at, at board meetings with, with messy hair. Let's put it that well, way. Well, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's with brilliance, right? That's what, what comes. So, so tell me, I, you know, I just want to go back to that thesis defense and, uh, you know, Fred had been thinking about microwave almost his entire life at this point. Okay. He, he goes to, he's been working with Dieter and, and they're trying to solve these problems. And then when you saw the thesis defense, I just want to know, was it obvious to you that microwave would be better? Was it, was it just like, what are these guys doing type of situation? What were your thoughts when you saw, when, when you saw that? Well, my thoughts were that uh, it, it seemed barbaric to run current through a patient, to have to paralyze the patient so that, you know, they wouldn't respond uh, when being effectively electrocuted. So you were thinking about the you were thinking about the patient well-being or were you thinking from just an efficacy standpoint that a burn could be much more controlled with microwave? All of the above. Okay. And Brian, maybe uh, one comment too is that you know, we had been pretty focused on radiofrequency ablation for many years and I told you that my only contribution was just an incremental improvement in current mic uh, radio frequency devices. But I think that Dan, as he mentioned before, thought about the problem more as a fundamental problem about just making an ablation zone with whatever. And his broad-based understanding of energy writ large was something that someone like me just couldn't have. I mean, I was 
so focused on a specific device and a specific improvement for a device, that was as far as I could take it because, as Dan mentioned, I had no fundamental knowledge of how energy and tissue interacted, but Dan came from the very opposite perspective where he knew everything about that and wasn't as aware of the clinical devices and the current limitations as, as I was. I think that's part of the reason why we make such a good team. I, I think that really highlights the complementarity that was uh, extremely important to the success of the uh, the project uh, because, uh, you know, it's it's very difficult I think for a physician to be as fully informed of all the fundamental physics going into the, um, you know, the use of different types of energy for different types of purposes. And no, I think there's a, there, there's a certain amount of, uh, ego that is, you know, accompanies anybody who ha has, uh, is accomplished in, in a given area. So. Managing that ego and, and knowing the limits of my knowledge and being, uh, as, as Fred has said earlier, being humble enough to simply uh, listen and, and perhaps consider that I may not know the full scope of the application or the limitations. Uh, that's so important, especially, for example, you know, Fred was keenly aware of the, the clinical limitations of the current practice. And, you know, f for me, not being aware of those limitations was actually beneficial. I think subsequently with the start of Elucent, for example, again, Fred mentioned some clinical limitations uh, with regard to placement of a hook wire. That to me again sounded barbaric, and it was kind of you know new wave 2.0. It's like why not do it this way as opposed to that way? And so I think that having the sort of childlike wonder <laughs> that Fred yeah. has about wow, you know this looks really bad. I don't know what we can do about it, rather than presuming that. You know, there's necessarily a solution that's just around the corner. Talking to somebody else with a completely different perspective is often where the magic happens. And that's okay. That, that, that just needs to be highlighted. I think that's where I was going with this is, you know, somebody out there, if you have a clinical need, a problem you're trying to solve, somebody out there has a solution. I mean, there's no problem on earth that I imagine could not be solved if you had the right people. And so... It makes sense. I mean, uh, Fred went to the thesis defense and, you know, his his ears were up. He was open for for new opportunities and, and new, to meeting new people who might have solutions like yourself. And so you guys had a conversation. You did some initial prototyping. And then when did you have the conversation about starting a company? I mean, I assume you two didn't know each other before that time. We knew each other because we, we were living in the same neighborhood and our kids were going okay. to the same elementary right. school, but it wasn't, That's right. uh, you know, it you wasn't anything. You weren't like best friends or anything no, or had, no, no, you didn't. Really, no. really just, I think, you know, the, the, the genesis of, of New Wave was, you know, also the genesis of just a very productive, collaborative relationship and friendship. But, um, you know. Incredible. It, yeah. It, it, I, I also have been thinking about this too, is, um. And we'll probably touch on this going forward, but 
being friends with someone, let's say prior to getting involved with them in a business sense is also a double-edged sword. And I'm, I'm not sure that, that, you know, that would characterize the relationship that, that Fred and I have had, because I think that we weren't um, like drinking buddies who sat around saying, hey, let's start a company together. You know, there was a real, there was a real, you know, genesis and, and impetus to doing this that drove it forward. And, and the, the downside, I think, of knowing somebody socially Beforehand. before getting them involved in something that is so, uh, you know, important and, and involves so much sacrifice is that you don't necessarily uh, know whether you can criticize them <laughs> and yeah. still be able to have dinner and drink with them later on, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. You know, so I would say that that's also something to consider that, uh, you know, just the character of the individuals involved is, is a key aspect of success. Basically, there's a difference between social friends and founder friends. And... I hate to say it from what I've seen, founder friends requires a level of trust and 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 just belief and commitment that is on a different level. Uh, you know, having experienced it here, you you put your whole faith in that person. And, you know, not only that, financially, that's something that right. never really, really comes into uh, not often to a social friendship is like we're both going to commit a significant financial risk here because we believe in each other. Um, and that, that's a big commitment. It's like marriage. I want to say that it's like, uh, it's, yeah, like, it's, like uh, it's, it's like, it's like marriage. It's, a, it's an apt analogy. So tell us about, tell us about that. Yeah. Both of y'all. So Brian, I was just going to say that, uh, the, it, I think Dan accurately characterizes how we got to know each other. And, you know, it's one of those things where if the business relationship and the academic relationship, uh, really preceded our friendship. And we started to realize over time, and, and I would include Laura in this too, is that we just, we had skill sets that were very complementary. Our personalities, I think, are very complementary. And over time, we just realized that I can trust this person with anything. And I'd just add one extra anecdote is that, and, and Dan will tell the story about how the company actually got started in some of the financial risks we took, which were pretty yep. substantial. Um, but after the dust cleared and New Wave had exited, um, Dan and I got together and we, uh, with the university, we, f we made a professorship and the, uh, we, we funded it, the two of us, as, as well as wow. some other donors at the university. And, you know, the, the professorship, we wanted to make it a um to kind of memorialize in dan's words the uh, complementary nature of radiology and engineering and and so totally we, we have we haven't given it to anybody yet but it, it's essentially fully funded but there's two things that really struck me about that first that um, dan and i made equal contributions to the professorship and then when we decided, well, what are we going to name this? And the chairs of the departments were asking us about what we're going to name it. Dan is the one that said, you know, we're going to name it after your father. Wow. And, uh, and to me, I'm thinking to myself, wow, you know, what a, I mean, what a 
financial sacrifice Dan just made, what a personal sacrifice he's made over many years to make our company go, and then to be so generous and to not even think about it and to be celebrating this, you know, even though it, it was named after my father, I mean, that is something that was just special and you just don't see very often. And, and that was one of the moments of many that I felt like, okay, I made the right choice in partners. Yeah, it's a, it's very clear to me. I mean, you take ego out of it because there's so much ego involved. And I think, Dan, you're, you're probably going to talk a little bit about that, I hope. But, you know, it's finding people who are so experienced and humble. And that's, that is the perfect combination because those people generally want to find the right answer, not want to be right. And that's something when we were at Stanford Biodesign, we talked about all the time. You'd start arguing about something and you're like, wait a minute. Am I arguing because I want to be right or am I arguing because I want to find the right answer? And those are two very different things and you can often spot them if you really look close enough. And so it's so important to have people who are looking for the right answer. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes, you know, the people aren't right. And Dan, maybe tell this story about one or two individuals that weren't right in the company. And it, it, yeah. it's really hard, especially, Brian, as you're saying at the beginning of a company, you're so small and there's just a few of you and you have to make a really, really hard decision that somebody's just not right for the team. And, um, well, Dan, you should tell the story because you really are the one that saved us. Is this before or after you guys, because it sounds like you guys self-funded a little bit, uh, or not a little bit, you self-funded early on. Was this before? Did you self-fund and then hire people that didn't end up working out or bring on partners. I, I want to know what, what skin in the game you had when these conflicts happen, I guess is why I'm bringing this up. Yeah. I, uh, you know, we, <clears throat> we self-funded to be able to hire our first full-time employee, Matt Thiel. And the, uh, the location of the company was initially in some leased space that I had in, um, an adjacent community to Madison called Middleton. And it was pretty nice office space that uh, was light industrial and um, made us look bigger than we actually were. And that's always, you know, useful for appearances sake. And we were able to create, you know, an, an environment that I think was inviting for uh, our initial uh, employees. And, and yet we were also keenly aware that in order for us to take it to the next level, we, we definitely needed some outside financing. And did you guys, and I know, I know Fred had mentioned mortgaging a house. Is that something that, is that where you, when you did this is kind of at the beginning or was that later? You know, I, I definitely was making somewhat painful contributions, but, uh, as is often the case, uh, when I'm starting a company with a partner, there's there's an understanding that, you know, I'm writing a check and you're writing a check. And, you know, uh, you can say all you want about how money might not be the most important thing, but it certainly is an indicator. And the willingness to, you know, expend those resources toward a common goal sends a powerful signal about, you know, anybody's you know, commitment to the overall enterprise. Mm -hmm. To investors um, and to each other. To each other. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, if you're not committed to each other and to the vision, uh, investors 
are not naive. They, they'll be able to see through that. So uh, I think all of this kind of rolls together. And, and I think it's, it's, it's important to bring out some subtleties. We were talking about ego earlier. Anybody who knows me, especially, you know, when I get student evaluations, I, I get certain student evaluations that are pretty harsh. And actually, you know, they're, they're a little bit painful to read because, uh, you know, they, 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 they highlight how I can be kind of imperious and condescending uh, to, to, to certain students. And, and I certainly don't mean to be that way. But uh, I also don't have a lot of time to get the points across. And so uh, I, I'm not babysitting, you know. Uh, so, you know, I, I, can, I can come across as pretty matter of fact. And, um, and I've had a, a, an attorney friend of mine describe me as being intense. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> hey, sometimes you need intensity and, for a startup. And, um, so. You know, I, you know, it's, it's sort of like a fish in water. You know, I don't see that, you know, it just looks like water to me, but, um, <laughs> I will, I, I will fully, you know, accept that if somebody thinks that, you know, I can be intense to the point of condescending, you know, that, that may be, you know, an opinion you can hold and maybe it reflects a little bit more on you than it does on me, but whatever. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, fortunately, Fred is somebody who is not, uh, put off by, you know, whatever personality quirks I might have. And, uh, <laughs> Well, and tell yeah. us about those. Tell us how your personality and maybe others on the team didn't, maybe they didn't mesh. It sounds like you guys funded, you had a lot of skin in the game. And uh, where did, where did, where did things maybe yeah. try to go off the rails a little bit? Well, I'm, I'm thinking in particular about um, our initial <clears throat> sort of business person who we got involved. Um, and, and I, again, I would hearken back to my earlier comments about, um, friendships kind of informing the, you know, decisions that, that were made. And, and I think Fred, you know, you might have a few words to say about how that may have influenced your selection of this individual. If you want to say a few yeah, words I mean, before we launch into it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, and Brian, this is like, as you listen to this, you're going to be saying like, what is the matter with these guys? They should have seen this from a hundred miles away, but just just didn't. And no, that's it, how, that's how startups are. You don't know until the problem's <laughs> so obvious in your rear view mirror. You're like, wow, well, I didn't, we see that. And everybody else sees it, you know, but <laughs> maybe you don't. Yeah. And, and in retrospect, it's, it's obvious, but at the time it's sometimes not so obvious. And so what Dan is referring to is that, you know, I'm, I'm a doctor and, and I never thought that I would be involved with business ever. I mean, Dan is a little bit more evolved thinker in terms of business and has had some experience in the past before, but I, I just never did. And, you know, and I know, Brian, I'm, uh, you can really relate to this when I say that when you think about business people, quote unquote, they all seem the same. You know, it's like they, they must have gone to business school and they must have yeah. learned how to do this and they must learn how to do yeah. that. Just like people think about doctors and are a little bit surprised that I might know, not know very much about neurosurgery, for example, yeah. you know, it's, <laughs> right. the, 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 the yeah, there's <laughs> definitely a whole subspecialties that, uh, that I don't know anything about. <laughs> That's exactly right. And, and just as much as, as we have subspecialization in medicine, there is subspecialization in business. And frankly, I did not appreciate that very well. Yep. What Dan is referring to is that I had a friend whose wife was involved in retail at a fairly high level in business. 
um, with a well-known company and um, had recently moved to Madison. And I thought to myself, hey, this is perfect serendipity. This is somebody that has a lot of business experience that can help us get going in a startup. And on the face of it, seemed pretty decent. I mean, this person had a resume that, um, that was very impressive, but it was mostly in the retail side. But for me, I, I didn't know that there was any difference between startup and retail. It's all business, you know? And Dan was a little bit more nervous about it, but said, let's kind of give it a shot. And um, at the beginning, things went fairly well. As you said, you're in that honeymoon phase and yeah, exactly. there's some excitement and things. And then um, up into the point where it didn't. And, and I'll let Dan take it from there and maybe describe when the wheels sort of started falling off, when we started looking for outside funding and, and, and that sort of thing, when we were trying to move from bootstrapping into a real company. Yeah. So I think that, uh, you know, without, without being able to unearth all the, all the details, I'd just like to cover it at more of the anecdotal high level company at a conceptual level, because here we are trying to develop the, um, the probe, the, you know, the, the, the needle the, and the, the power source. We've got Matt Thiel working full-time on the, on, you know, on the engineering side of things, as well as, um, you know, on the comp uh, from a complimentary perspective, um, Fred's already mentioned, you know, Paul and Chris, essentially his student and my student who've also gone on to be extremely successful in their careers working on the academic uh exploration of 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 this stuff and and just as a an a side note but one that I want to dock it for for later uh discussion is the the way we handled the IP um I think is something that that I'm uh proud of even though it required swallowing hard at the time to uh to to make that decision but we we weren't we didn't develop this under any federal support. Um, and as such, uh, at the University of Wisconsin, the policy is that, uh, you know, even though you disclose such an invention, you are not obligated to, and, you know, turn the title over to assign the university. It. Assign yeah. it, right. Um, and that's, uh, that's a, a unique situation and one of the attractive aspects of being here. Um, but nonetheless, we did choose to assign it to WARF. And then... Um, what is WARF? WARF stands for the Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation. You've probably heard of WARFRIN, which is Coumadin. Yes, Blood Fred Center. spoke about this on the last show. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So so anyway, WARF, is, uh, WARF operates at arm's length from the university, but is effectively the, the IP processing and licensing arm of, mm -hmm. of yeah, University right. of Wisconsin. And so we brought the invention to them uh, and then turned around and had to license it. So, you know, right. sort of like taking your kid and, and adopting it out and then, and then re-adopting your kid at a price. And I think that that uh, decision was one of many where we chose the high road and never looked back, but always appreciated the kind of political advantages that accrued to that decision in terms of, you know, we did something we didn't have to do. Uh, and the fact that 
both Fred and I were in agreement about something like this, even though it required shelling out many tens of thousands of dollars in order to license that patent. Um, we, we nonetheless did it. Now, people might sit there and, and say to themselves, why would you do something as foolish as that? I mean, you're taking your seed corn and you're basically, you know, giving it to somebody who's not producing value immediately for the company. But along in, in a, in a long-term way, it, um, it eventually paid off for us, not, not only in terms of goodwill, but also in terms of, uh, you know, Wharf eventually became an investor in the company. So, uh, and has sub- subsequently be- been an investor in, in, in our other companies. So, so we built, you know, really good relationships by making a hard choice up front. So I, I, I mentioned that only in terms of um, having to be on the same side when we make difficult decisions. Uh, another decision that we had to face fairly early on while we were still embryonic and certainly I think before we got our first uh, A round of funding was that we were approached by um, a, a, a large medical device company who was aware of what we were doing. And, uh, you know, Fred, you'll remember this. Um, we we were offered I'd, roughly what million bucks for, for what it was at the time, you know the the status of the of the of the device and of the system. It was more than that, but uh, but more yeah, than that, would, but you know it's yeah. something something that you know sounds like a lot of money, um, but doesn't necessarily reflect where we think it's going to go. Right at the time, we we hadn't really solved the uh, the cooling issue. You know, so there were there were things that still needed to be solved, but it was starting to look more and more promising. And 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 Fred and I and and the others on the team, to a lesser extent, had to look at each other and say, "No, uh, we're not going to take this. We're not going to take the short term buyout. Uh, we're we're going to do. You know, we're we're in this for the long haul." Um, and I'm I'm extremely proud of that decision that we made and and more importantly the way that we made the decision and the you know that the teamwork and 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 shared sacrifice that went into making that decision because i think it was really born of of pure belief in the future of the company and not not influenced by you know short-term needs i mean it would have been really nice to have a little extra cash in each one of our pockets at at that time things were fairly lean um, but we we decided against it because we believed in the future of the company. So I'm I'm trying to set the stage for how you know at critical junctions uh, and decision points in the company's early lifetime, we collectively made decisions that had almost no at least in my memory almost no dispute about them. It's like yeah we're going to do this right or we're not going to do this right yeah mm-hmm. and and there wasn't a lot of back and forth where we ended up on opposite sides of the decision. So, you know, despite having discussed earlier in, in our talks about team conflicts, um, I think the, the nucleus of the team has always been very consistent in its values and the decisions that arise from those. So 
given that, now let's talk about specifically our our growing sort of discomfort with the approach of somebody who comes from a an executive position in retail, sure, and is uh, is trying to manage a startup, then the business side of the startup, and 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 perhaps aspiring to be someone and aspiring to become a name and aspiring to be known as somebody who's a founder and part of this very important thing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, basically, you know, are there some unmet ego needs there that are behind the scenes? Um, you know, well, maybe you can dive into what was going on. Where were the specific conflicts with well, this? Well, okay. Uh, and and I'm, I'm just setting the stage, but what, what, what was going on is we're trying to raise capital from either angels and we spoke to we spoke to a few and one in particular who was uh very interested in in financing us and and a local venture firm venture investors uh in particular one of their partners scott button with whom i'd had a, a long uh relationship anyway so he and i scott was a, a mechanical engineering graduate of the university of wisconsin so, you know, had a lot of interest in what was going on. And, and I had taught a course um, called Business for Engineers, which was kind of an outgrowth of an experience that I had doing the same thing at Stanford when I was a grad student there. So uh, I had Scott be one of our speakers in my Business for Engineers course. And so Scott was, I think, always interested in what what uh, Dan was doing. And so... Um, you know, we, I remember we brought Scott in to kind of explain to him what we were about and what we were um, trying to accomplish. And, you know, just, just showing kind of a tabletop demo, of, you know, the, the, the applicator, maybe some ideas that we were working on with regard to the power source. And I think Fred may have mentioned earlier that, you know, this isn't enough to give somebody who's well outside the field the, the overall picture and let them fill in all the blanks uh, in their imagination for how this could look in clinical practice. These are just a bunch of parts on the table. Um, so without going to the, a full-scale prototype complete with the operating table and, and the mannequin and, and drapes and things that we ended up setting up in this office building that, we, um, that I had been leasing, without enabling that kind of vision, we weren't getting anywhere. And until we did that, we actually swallowed hard. We said, you know what, even though we understand this, we're going to have to make it ultra explicit for the potential, you know, VCs. And so we went out and got a mannequin. We got a table. We draped it up. We, we basically just mocked up a whole OR in order to show them this is the vision. This is what we're going to do. And, you know, you might think, oh, that's kind of hokey. Why did you have to do that? It made a huge difference. It was, it was just one of those things that I think goes also to show the, the, you know, perspective, you know, sources of capital that you are serious, you know, and that you're going to do the extra work that's necessary to get the message across. Mm -hmm. And, that's and great so point. we did that. We, we, I still remember that kind of required digging deep and and getting a little outside of my comfort zone because I'm not used to having to kind of create a whole mock-up in order to get the point across. But we did that and 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 we really got a nibble, a strong nibble. 
And, and so now we're in the midst of discussions and, you know, that really should be more the, the business person's yep. bailiwick, right? And I, totally. don't, I don't want to step in and take over no. and do the negotiations when that's not really my job and I want it to be your job. Yeah. And, um, unfortunately there was a lot of naivete on the part of, of our initial business partner, um, and a lot of, I think maybe, uh, lack of, of, of understanding of how much work went into this and, and what we were really looking for. And so we were getting strong signals that things weren't really going well in terms of, you know, it's sort of like, uh, the difference between the manager and the owner, you know, you're at a restaurant and you, you know, something's wrong and you want to speak to the manager and the manager's just on the payroll, you know? doesn't really have skin in the game. And so, you know, you're talking to the manager, but the manager is like, you know, can, how can I get this person out of my hair? Or how yeah, can I right. just say whatever, you know, whereas if you could speak to the owner, you would get right down to brass tacks. Totally. And I think that that was a little bit of the situation here that, um, the manager wasn't really as morally invested in what we were doing. Uh, for whatever reason, uh, maybe just due to lack of experience, maybe had thousands of other distractions, but long story short, was making representations to the venture capital company that were not, uh, let's say, conducive to the kind of valuation we thought we deserved. So long story short, I think she was really um, lowballing us in order to get to a yes. <laughs> Got it. To get venture funding. Yeah. And Fred and I, you know, Fred and I were like, no, we think our valuation's a lot higher than that. And and so a lot of this was, you know, you got the angel, you got the VCs, you got a little bit of a bidding war, which is always always important to have a few parties involved. But you need to be really clear on what is the valuation. And what are your limits and what will you and won't you accept in terms of a number and what kind of dilution and post money that will represent? And so I had already been talking with a, a very well-heeled um, friend and advisor of mine. And I distinctly remember having a conversation with him in a bar in Door County, Wisconsin, while I was up there vacationing a little bit, just kind of, you know, burying my soul about this. And, um, you know, here's somebody who, you know, had been in a, you know, an investor with many orders of magnitude more, uh, at risk than I could have ever conceived of. Um, so it was really generous of him to, to listen to my tale of woe. And, you know, he had been following me and been really interested in what we were doing anyway. And so I kind of, you know, told him the story about how, you know, we were I felt we were being, you know, strongly undersold and, and yet, you know, here you're also thinking with your heart about, boy, this is a friend, especially a friend of Fred's. And, you know, I, I don't know what to do. I'm not sure we can just kind of dismiss this individual, but, you know, with, with this sort of reinforcement that I got from, from that conversation and, you know, some, some, you know, other trigger events that, that sort of indicated pretty clearly that we weren't going to get her back onto, you know, in, in, in 
sort of alignment with our vision for what this should be. I mean, it's always easy to get 2 million bucks. Is it easy to get four, 5 million bucks? You know, it's a different conversation. And, you know, you can walk out there out of the negotiating room with a quote win, which is, yes, you got money, but you know, you way undersold the value of this thing. So there's, there was all this kind of negotiation in terms of what we felt we were worth and how to make that clear to the prospective investors um, that involved um, bruising some egos all the way around and not intentionally, but it just, it just happened. I, you know, I think that the, the angel was, was miffed that, and felt that he was being used as a stalking horse. And that was never, ever my intent. When somebody attributes something to you that you couldn't even imagine being, then, you know, maybe you're just operating on instinct that suddenly has a name, but, you know, we were always negotiating in, in good faith. But we're not going to take a lowball offer when we believe in the company. And so to make a long story short, all these things, uh, you know, the advice from a, a trusted third party, the, 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 the signals that we kept getting that were indicative of um, being, uh, you know, undersold. And, and maybe that is, was an indication that maybe you didn't really believe in us. You just wanted to take the money and run. I don't know, and, and, and I don't want to waste time on that, but we finally just made the really hard decision to, uh, to let her go. And um, that was very hard. It, it's hard under any circumstances, but especially when there's a, you know, preceding friendship there, you know, uh, an established friendship that, you know, is going to damage Fred's, you know, standing at least in the short term. I don't know, Fred, if you want to weigh in on that. Yeah, Fred, if I want to hear this, this is a great, uh, this is a really great point, Dan, in the situation, the difficult situation that you found yourselves in where you had a disagreement with the CEO that you hired on valuation, it sounds like. I would say that's more of a, like a check engine light on a much more significant structural issue. Ah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't characterize that as, okay, we had a disagreement, therefore we parted mm. ways. I would say rather that that was just one indication of many Got that it. we weren't really aligned. Got it. I would agree with that. And, and I would say that over time, Brian, there were some red flags that were coming up, um, either, you know, lack of preparation, lack of professionalism, a few other just red flags that happened along the way. And... I think maybe, as you alluded to, and and Dan spoke with earlier about mixing business friendships and social friendships and all that stuff, that was a significant part of the problem because over time, it became more and more obvious we had to do something. This was not working. And in terms of Dan and my relationship, that was actually strengthening over time as we found ourselves on the same page time and time again about the way we thought about things and our approach to the business. This person was increasingly at odds with the two of us. But our mm-hmm. uh, our problem was is that how do we how do we resolve this because we had this overlying friendship in, in place. And I think Dan is the one that finally, well, this valuation thing was kind of the last straw. I would um, say there so. had yeah. there had been some other issues that had happened along the way in terms of budgeting where 
the business person put together a budget that was incredibly unrealistic about how much it was going to take to complete the product and get through FDA clearance. And, you know, they- Under budgeting, over uh, budgeting, obviously under budgeting, it sounds like. Under budgeting by a factor of like five or 10 or something. <laughs> wow. Substantially under, but un, under like budgeting. Like it's going to take, it'll take $600,000 to get through FDA clearance or something like it, that. It, well, that was, that was the number. <laughs> You're kidding. That was, that was the number. And yeah, uh, and Dan right, and I looked at each other and no like, experience, you know. So okay, yeah. yeah, that's you know anybody could look at that who's been in the space and be like, you know, you're right. That times ten. And and Dan and I looked at each other and and said like, whoa, you know, this really because over the course of the couple of years that we had been working on the business, I think that Dan and I had grown a lot. I mean, we had talked to a lot of people in the business. We were out there you know, trying to figure out as much as we can. And and we were, you know, we'd bootstrapped this obviously, and we were learning a lot. And I think when that, when these numbers started to show up, it became more and more obvious to Dan and I that this person's growth was not at the same level as ours was. Got it. And then the problem became, what do we do? And did they have equity? Let me, let me put it out there. Ugh, Dan, they talk did. about that because that's, oh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was another mistake. Is, that was, well, was my fault. You're right. I think, I think that, you know, we made some mistakes early on, not fatal errors, but mistakes about how to, you know, apportion equity. Certainly, I want to say that, that a business, you know, while we were talking earlier about, you know, business people being somewhat, you know, as physicians might view business people or even engineers might view business people as being somewhat interchangeable and having roughly the same skill set. A, that's not true. And B, that skill set should be just table stakes. And you should be evaluating the person on, you know, their particular capabilities as well as uh, experience, background, what they're able to bring to the party and contribute. And I think that in in this particular case, one of the lessons learned was, you know, we took, we chose somebody who had an impressive looking resume, which is, you know, important, but didn't have the, uh, the chops or experience to, to work in a med device startup. All right. And, and so maybe had the desire and, you know, especially because, you know, there's always the potential upside of being known as a, a founder and CEO of a successful company that has exited. You know, who wouldn't want that? But I can tell you from today's perspective that, you know, if somebody approached me saying, hey, Dan, would you mind being CEO of this startup? I would swallow extremely hard and I have to look at that with really jaundiced eyes before I would think twice about, you know, you know, doing it. And in other words, anybody who's too eager to do that is probably telling you, they don't know what they're getting into. So, yeah. and so think, what was the, what was you, so you gave, so this person had equity, you had to fire mm -hmm. them. And mm -hmm. what, like, what was that conversation like? And did they want all of their equity vested? I don't recall our particular vesting schedule, but yep. I do know that, you know, when, you know, fast forward to when New Wave exited, they got a, a pretty nice check. So, you know, that it was just one of those things that, you know, you learn, you learn that don't hand out equity willy nilly. And, and I think a, and a strong corollary to that, which is something I always advise, uh, anybody who comes to me, um, seeking the, you know, advice on this particular topic, I always advise 
young startups not to mess up the cap table. Don't get the cap table too complicated with side deals with your uncle and your your best friend from high school. Uh, I've seen lots of that, you know, just, you know, naive expressions of generosity that have turned into a little bit of a messier situation when big money comes around looking to, you know, inject serious capital. If you've got all these side deals and codicils, that makes it harder to sort things out. So uh, my advice would be uh, think carefully about giving out equity. And and I know Fred and I are both on the same page about setting milestones and goals, contractual goals that have to be achieved in order to get a certain level of vesting. Yeah, it would have made it quite a bit easier, Brian. I mean, we had some very, very difficult conversations uh, with this person again, because they were a friend as well as a business partner. And the, you know, around the stock, this person got a disproportionately large percentage for taking us essentially nowhere. And, um, you know, the, luckily the prototype and all that the, on the engineering side had been progressing, but on the business side, we were basically at ground zero. And if we had had a, a vesting schedule with milestones, it would have been so much smarter as well as having a more market-based, you know, reason for giving people exactly a, a certain amount of equity. So did this person, did you guys have a time-based equity, equity vesting schedule or did you just say, okay, you get 4% or 5% of the company and it's yours now? Or was yeah. there a, a vesting schedule and this person just ended up staying there long enough to get a decent amount of equity? Well, that was the tragic mistake. There's there's two tragic mistakes. One is that there was no vesting schedule. It was okay. it was founder shares and Dan and I just said, Okay, bang, here's here's your your chunk. We didn't wow. again we we weren't thinking about the downsides and it was very naive and, and I take wow. I take the blame for it. This was this is my mistake. And then the the amount that we gave was very high, was okay. way too much yep. uh, from for market. A bit. Yeah, that's right. And and it was my fault that I didn't research the market. And um, I think we would have taken less of a haircut if we had known market, re if, if I personally had known market rates and researched it and had a vesting schedule and had a milestone based schedule, it would have been so much less painful. We also should have, um, in terms of the milestones and things, I think if we had put, you know, certain accomplishments over certain time, it would yep. have made the dismissal that much easier too. Right. It would have by been having, clear. That's right. That's right. In this case, this person's perception was that they were doing a great job and they didn't understand what the problem was. And they were so close to a deal and Dan and I undercut them, you know, mm -hmm. they were just about ready to ink a really great deal. And, and what was, what were Dan and I doing getting in the way? We knew nothing about business, you know, so yep, yep. You, you can right. see that it, uh, oh, it was very mm, complex different. and nasty. You're not, you're looking at the same problem in completely different ways. Right. That's and right. You can, you can also appreciate that, um, you know, we're, we're, you know, we, we said we hired a driver <laughs> and then we're sitting in the car and we, we see the car going off in the ditch and yeah. we're going to have to take the your wheel and say, wait a second, yep. you know, I, you hired me to drive the car and now you're steering. Well, I don't want to die. So yes, that's what <laughs> I'm, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> I think that sort of adequately captures uh. the essence of what we're what we're talking about. So, you know, you see the car drifting off the road and you're like, 
this is a professional driver. Should we say something? And then yeah, we're getting they stayed, stayed at a ho- stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night or something. <laughs> so, did you have to negotiate with this person to take lower equity than what they had originally? I mean, were they open to that, or was it like, no, all of this equity is mine, even if you're firing me? That's right. Th- yeah. There was there was no was understanding. Kind of a lot that, of hard, that, hard feelings, and yeah, and that's just tough. Like, you know. Yeah. That's tough. You know, it's yeah. like, you know, you, 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 you swallow hard and you, you, you look at each other and you say, okay, you know, this lesson learned, you know, we had that with, uh, with, uh, also with an attorney, an IP attorney who, you know, I mean, Fred, Fred takes the blame for, for one thing, well, the other IP attorney was somebody who had, I had known and, and put and, and, and done a little bit of work for, and, and it turned out that. You know, while it's fine if he hires me as an expert witness, if I hire him and I'm a client of his, he had, you know, dollar signs in his eyes. And he was very, very insistent on getting compensated uh, at a very significant rate. And so, you know, I think we both uh, made character judgments about people who, you know, we, you know, the type of person we needed. And had had candidates who were re- readily available and didn't really fully appreciate that just because you might have had a pre-existing relationship with this person in a different sphere, that suddenly they would be, you know, understanding of the current situation. And I think in both both of those cases, we had uh, a, a rude awakening that these folks weren't exactly as advertised or as you expected them to be. Wow. Dan, would you say the lessons that we learned were that before you bring somebody into the team, you need to do some market research to make sure you know what you're paying for, how much you're paying for it. Try to make very clear milestone-based agreements that are objective and that are easily verified. And if you're going to be bringing in somebody that you know, especially through a social or, or other connection, be doubly careful. I would say you really adequately captured it there um, because having having that pre-existing relationship, it's human to be kind of blinded to yeah. objectivity. Totally. Yeah, you see you see your friends and you see that, you know, it's it's that what's that bias that where you basically Somebody is good in some realm or experienced in one realm and you Mm -hmm. apply it to every, you look at them and say they must be good in all these other realms or they must be morally good because they're so experienced in this realm. Um, And, you know, that obviously if you have prior friends. I I think that's, that's uh, exactly the point is that, you know, having, having an, an existing relationship and just not doing due diligence because, you know, it's already, you know, you already know this person or you think you do is, uh, is not a substitute for, you know, putting on the, you know, the green eye shade and, and looking at it more objectively. But I will tell you that it's just human nature as well as the fact that, you know, founders and listeners of this podcast are busy people. And when you're a busy person, you tend to have to take shortcuts because there's just not enough time in the day to do the thorough kind of vetting to to say nothing of just even finding these people, right? I mean, if you don't have a network of attorneys. Exactly. Yep. 
then how are you going to choose an attorney? <laughs> you know, that's if right. You, that's if right. you don't have a you choose the one that you see. If you uh, you know you're in the right. bathroom and you you stall, you found an attorney. You're like, well, yeah. it's the only attorney we know. We should call him. Sure, he yeah, does. Just you know, like bail bonds, you know, or something. <laughs> but uh, but uh, you know, he's an attorney, right? Right. Right. And, and, you know, I mean, uh, I, I've gone from knowing, you know, being very fearful early on in my career of getting a, a letter in the mail that has a law firm's address on it. I've gone from, <laughs> from that extreme to being like, there is nothing that you guys can say to me that's going to make me, you know, shake in my boots. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's too, I know you really... guys too well now, you know, it's so, you've got a coat of arms. I, now I, and... Well, it's just, I've seen behind the curtain. I've seen how sausage is made. So I'm yeah, like, yep. okay, <laughs> we're in a different sphere now, but you know, that, I mean, to, to, you know, it's just like in medicine. I mean, there's a certain amount of stagecraft that is actually necessary for the patient to, to have full faith in what's going on. Right. You drape totally. a patient you drape a patient because, you know, I, I saw a picture of, of, you know, a, a C-section the other day and, and, you know, the patient's draped. She can't see what's going on um, because you don't want her. She's conscious and you don't want her to see what's going on. No, it's you not do not. Be, it's not going to promote the health of the baby or, or the, no. you know, the parent. No. So, so, you know, there is a reason for stagecraft. And, and there is a reason to, you know, create a sense of belief, uh, as long as it's appropriate and can be backed up. But, you know, the, that can also be very blinding to our ability to, to objectively conduct business. Yeah. And so, you know, in, in, in many of these cases and in the case we've been spending a lot of time talking about, we really wanted to believe, I mean, just like. You know, we believed in each other and continue to believe in each other. You like to impart that, you know, to everyone. I'm, I'm, I'm an extremely trusting person once, <laughs> and <laughs> then, you know, you violate that trust and, and it's going to be really hard for me to, you know, regain that trust in you. Fool me once. Yeah. Right? Fool me once. Right. And so, but that naivete, um, on both our parts has, uh, has served us well in certain aspects, because I think, you know, potential investors, uh, like to see candor. They like to see a little bit of freshness and not, you know, not a jaded investor who says, okay, this is the way it's going down and this is what you're going to give me, you know? So, so I don't want to, you know, I don't want everybody listening to this to think, oh, well, I just better, you know, vet everybody around me to the nines until I can make a decision. Because that's going to be paralysis by analysis. Exactly. And you and can't you have live to, that yeah. way. You can't, you can't make progress that way. You, you can't uh, make you know. progress. You have to have a way of recovering from Correct. the inevitable mistakes that you're going to make. And that's yes. what I think this whole thing is about. Absolutely. And I think what I hear is, you know, this making the decision to hire this person you know, could it have gone better? Sure. But the protections in place that you guys looking back now, it's vesting. I think having a vesting schedule, whether it's milestone based or time based, really would have clarified and allowed you to course correct without taking a haircut um, the way you had and, and, and going forward. But you have to make a decision. You need somebody. And, well, uh, you know, and, you know, and the way I see it, it's tuition in the school. Of exactly. Life. You paid, um, because, you paid up. You know, you're, you know, you would not, you could have heard those words in B school, 
but they would not have meant anything that's to right. you. That's right. Um, it's so funny how you have to experience the actual emotion uh, of going through <laughs> the pain yourself before you're like, oh, you know, maybe I shouldn't put my hand in the, you know, the disposal or something or... Yeah, maybe I shouldn't lick the cold telephone pole outside like a Christmas story or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Brian, one of the one of the things we've been talking about though is serendipity yes. on the negative side. And, That's true. And and we've been talking about some of the downsides because, yeah. of course, humans tend to remember their mistakes really well. But I think Dan, maybe we've had some serendipity on the positive side too. And one of those people that we met again, through no particular skill of our own was Scott Button. And right. this is a guy who, you know, well, I'm going to let Dan describe him because he's a guy you get in the trenches with. And, you know, he's going to be, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm in a way somewhat ashamed. I, I tell Scott all the time, I'm ashamed to say that I have a venture capitalist that's a friend. <laughs> and this guy's earned it. And uh, and Dan maybe can discuss yeah. how we got our Series A funding. And, and this yeah. was positive serendipity. Yeah, I, I you know, I mean, I did mention, mention him. that yep. mm-hmm. uh, Scott, Scott and I had had a pre-existing relationship and he was very interested in in um, following what I was up to, and you know, Venture Investors is is a a firm that has an office in Madison, so there is that sort of small town aspect to this whole thing. And I I would like to highlight that having you know having that proximity is an important ingredient in building long term trust. I mean, you can call it the small town effect, but you know, the sphere of of acquaintances at least in a, in a town the size of Madison, is, is not so large that, you know, eventually what goes around isn't going to come around. You know, you can't continue to burn bridges around here and expect to, to you know, to be able to, to, to raise money locally. So anyway, uh, we, we persuaded Scott to, uh, with the, on the basis, at least in part, of making our, you know, OR mock-up look sufficiently like the real thing to have him and 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 by extension venture investors agree to a a valuation and uh, an investment that i think all around would be considered to be very fair where nobody was taking an improper haircut and that sort of gesture of goodwill and, you know, saying, I'm going to get in the boat with you guys and I'm going to row just as hard, give me an oar, is something that has carried forward to this day. It's not hard to find, a you know, a fund that has money available, has capital to deploy. I would strongly caution, however, that capital without brains and capital without character is capital you don't want. So choose your investors wisely because they're going to be in the boat with you and they need to be pulling at the same rate in the same direction that you want the company to go. And I I would totally agree with Fred. That's one area where not only did we get uh, a great partner, but even more fortuitously, 
when we had to vacate this uh, office building that I was uh, describing earlier because uh, another tenant was found and I managed to get bought out of the lease, I turned around and acquired a mixed-use building in another adjacent community to Madison, in which um, we ended up, to which we ended up moving the company, and 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 in fact, in order to keep funding the company, I sold my house and moved to the apartment above <laughs> this place. Wow! So that was, uh, you know, that's basically you know that sort of shopkeeper wow. situation. Oh my gosh! Um, well, Brian, you know, the company you, was in his basement. Man. You do, <laughs> you do what you do what you have to do. You do what that, you have to do. I own this. I own this property to this day, yep. and and it's been the source of a lot of startups now. So it's it hasn't been a bad investment. But when venture investors was doing their due diligence, they thought, you know, what we're going to bring this other person who has a little bit of uh, experience in medical devices, named Laura King, and uh, at the time her partner also from. G Medical Systems, I believe one at one time at least, Richard Richard Parmentier, I think is how you pronounce his name. Laura and Richard had formed their own little sort of um, consulting company to uh, to do this kind of thing, and so they came in and kind of looked us up and down, and um, I have a smile on my face just because I think that this is. This is emblematic of sometimes the way Dan thinks. <laughs> I like to think that this is this is the way I could think all the time. But in come the enemy, namely, or you know, the, the people who are trying to knock us down and tell us, um, you know, what's wrong with our schedule and what's wrong with our concept, and you know, poke holes, you know, like the the house inspector, right? You're trying to sell the house. And the house inspector comes in and says, well, you know, this floor isn't that great. And the, the roof is going to need to be, you know, re-shingled pretty soon. And you've got radon and you know, all kinds of things. But, you know, we were just really impressed with how thorough Laura and Richard were. And in particular, you know, I'm thinking, Laura's pretty sharp. <laughs> she really has a good head on her shoulders, despite coming from, you know, a large company. And so uh, we turned around to venture investors and we said, you know, um, you guys can invest, but you're going to make her the CEO. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I just thought that was a little bit of jujitsu that yeah. uh, was, um, I was, wow. I, I think we can take pride in that decision. That's incredible. And it was the right thing to do. Well, it's just like, you know, you're bringing in your own handpicked advisor and then yeah. we turn around and say, sure, we'll embrace that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you used it to your own advantage. Exactly. And I think, and I think uh, that might be a perfect place to stop and be ready to bring on Laura uh, next time. That would be uh, that would be awesome. That would be yeah. perfect. So, look, perfect. I, what I want to do is go through a brief summary of what I think we've spoken about, and you guys please edit and add as I go through. So, the last things we just talked about: capital without character is capital you don't want. I'm going to use that phrase. I think that's great, Dan. Choose your investors wisely because they need to they need to be working and helping to make progress along with you. They need to be rowing in the same direction as you said. Next, not all hires work out on a team. 
that's really what I wanted to get across here uh, for our listeners mm-hmm. is like not every team works out and not everybody on your team is going to make it all the way to the end. Right. Um, you know, uh, and especially if you've had prior friendships is what I'm hearing here from this. Uh, so make sure everyone vests equity in a company either over time or using a milestone based approach. It can save you uh, a lot of heartache and money probably, you know, uh, in, in the future. Uh, a lot of regret. I think on every side, uh, you you can feel more more like you know what direction you're going in, and even the people you're hiring will know what they can expect. Yeah, and I would I would add too to that. Just make sure that you set expectations correctly, and that as you mentioned, not everybody is going to be with the company through the entire life of totally. the company. Yes, often it includes the founders. And yeah, it does. Yeah. And and our when Laura will tell you that um, that you know she looked at Dan and I at the very beginning and was wondering is there going to be a day when she's going to have to fire the founders? Oh my gosh! And luckily, that didn't happen with the two of us, but um, it has happened in the past, and um, mm-hmm. and oh. even the founders need to be ready for that possibility. I want right. to hear her her say that as well. And you also mentioned I have to say this: get market get market rates for potential hires. In terms of equity and compensation or total compensation we should say that information is out there you have to hunt for it but it's out there and i think that can also help you from overcompensating or undercompensating in both directions find advisors who are more experienced than you are i think it sounds like dan you you know really you had you had a good advisor in the business uh on the business side who kind of helped you come to this realization and yeah if i could add just a little color to that i would say that um you know, you have chronic and you have acute. I would characterize that person as being more of an acute advisor, which is important. And, you know, don't confuse the two, although there may be people who can do both. You know, you might need acute advice or you might need chronic advice. And those two might not be the same person or at the same time. What I can see is that a chronic advice is somebody who probably has been in the trenches with you for a while. So they kind of know the backstory, which can be good, but it could also be bad because you can miss the big picture sometimes with that type of person. Not only that, not only that. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt, but um, no, please. Also, also the acute advisor can be a little bit more forceful when you need when you, you sense that you need it. Yeah. You know, I'm looking That's for confirmation. Point. I'm looking for confirmation that this was, that this, it's time to, to move on. Right. Tent stakes. Yeah. And you know, your, your, your chronic advisor is probably like, you know, the frog in the water that's just been slowly up, boiling, you know, slowly <laughs> boiling and, and not really able to, to add much to you where, when what you need is you really need to have, you know, that, that acute kind of, uh, situation yeah. addressed and you need, you need the push. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Next, make the vision crystal clear to investors. So visuals, like you did, a mock-up OR, they go a very long way. And I have told that. I think a lot of investors like shiny things. That's what I say. Um, so, oh, yeah. Prototyping. You know, prototype, prototyping yeah. is absolutely essential to communicate the vision of the company. And a prototype can be a visual too. I mean, you could have a design of it that looks compelling and and really shows how it's going to be used in an OR setting. I think probably goes a long way for people who maybe aren't in the medical field or as experienced, they're not physicians. So you kind of have to paint the picture for them. 
Well, and I, and I would also, I would also hasten to add, but, and this is again, the fish and water kind of situation that I find myself in as an engineer, especially on the more inventive and creative side, I'm an extremely visual thinker. And, uh, so I naturally assume that everybody else is also a visual thinker. And, uh, I encounter students who I encountered a student the other day who, who basically just straight up told me I'm not a visual thinker. And I'm like, what is there such a thing? No, there <laughs> oh, is. And, there no, is. I, and I, and I, and I just gained a huge amount of appreciation. I so appreciated her saying that because it really reminded me, you know what? You can't assume that everybody gets these mental pictures and can flesh that out. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And the next one here going down the line, I just want to say this one bootstrapping or self-funding an early startup, uh, is incredibly common. I just want to tell our listeners out there, paying for it Not yourself early on. Not only incredibly common, I think incredibly expected. There you go. Incredibly expected. So <laughs> even from even from investors, you know, you're, you you got to get the money somehow and nobody's going to give you, you money you early on. You better have a lot of skin in the game before you, you come go. to me and ask me to contribute. There you go. I want to yep. see the level of your commitment. Perfect. That's, uh, that is very, very uh, important to know. And then we talked about founder friends versus social friends. And I never thought about it this way, but founder friends are kind of like a marriage more than anything else. And they can be, they're built on a foundation of trust that only becomes stronger as you go along and your alignment and decision makings becomes clear. Uh, and that can lead to an amazing friendship. The reverse is kind of bringing in a social friend and, you know, now you become business partners. It can be easy to be blinded by your social friendship uh, and not blinded. I don't want to use that word, but you can be biased uh, by your social friendship, maybe to the detriment of the company at some point. And it can be hard. You don't want to ruin friendships over this social friendships. And I, I, I'd like to add a corollary to that, which Fred um, will readily agree to. We, we licensed some technology in one aspect that involved... Um, a physician whose uh, spouse, Fred, you know what I'm talking about, um, <laughs> was much more controlling and 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 interested in the you know that that kind of exchange than probably was warranted. Uh, so you need to be careful about that too. That you know you, the the potential partner may come with a partner of their own who is uh, not so much a silent partner, but it can be, you know, exerting influence in ways that are not directly beneficial to the company's future. But, you know, that person doesn't really have any control because they're married, you know. The silent partner. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, or not silent, uh, however not so you silent, to... right? So, <laughs> so you know, you not only have to pick your, you know, partners carefully, but you have to look at who Everybody. are their influencers. Totally, yeah, that's that's important. And then finally, bringing it back to the very beginning, uh, someone out there has the solution you need. And there was that fateful day, theater's thesis defense, where you two. Uh, met and uh, everything started coming together. And to me, this screams, open yourself up, Fred, we talked about this, to serendipity moments. You know, open your, 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 your chances of meeting the person who has the solution you need. And you can only do that really by networking, 
and and going out there and actively looking for these types of things to let serendipity happen. And I'm so glad it did. So we got to hear this story and you got to share this story with everybody. But I really appreciate it to both of you. I think this was very eye-opening on teams, early teams, conflict, equity. And um, I think we all learned a lot and we're super excited for phase three on when New Wave really started taking off like a rocket and ultimately was gobbled up. All right. Well, thank you both. Uh, I really appreciate your time today. It's a lot to learn from you guys, that's for sure. Thanks, Brian. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Backtable Innovation on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable Innovation is produced and hosted by Brian Hartley, Aaron Fritz, and Eric Yamaker. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Ann Dang, social media and PR by Chi Ding and Dana Parker. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.